Adam Shartoff, your host of Filmwax Radio. It's Thursday, April the 2nd, 2020, and it's episode 607. Uh, it is evening already. I wasn't going to post today, actually. I've had a bad day. If you've been listening regularly to this show, you know that uh, my, my mother has been um, in uh, uh, the advanced stages of dementia for, for quite some time. She's been uh, bedridden and nonverbal um, for, for years now. So it was reported to me uh, in the last couple of days that she uh, was being tested for COVID-19 because she's in a nursing home. She had a um, a temperature. So you called me today and they told me, in fact, she did have it. Um, my, my mother's a fighter. She's actually, uh, interestingly enough, she's got a temperature, but she doesn't have any respiratory issues at the moment. So it's very possible that she will be able to fight this. So I'm hoping. Uh, unfortunately, at the same time, my father, today, everything kind of fell apart. He was also in a, another nursing home in a rehab center for a number of problems. And uh, today, I was uh, informed that he was being sent to the hospital. Yeah, this is just after a call confirming that my mother had coronavirus. I get a call on my dad's place that they're sending him to the hospital because he is... Uh, having respiratory problems of his own, and he has a temperature. And I get informed by the doctors that uh, he's in critical condition and it's uh, only a matter of time. It's possible with a certain course that they're pursuing that he may indeed bounce back. I don't know what he's exactly what he's got, but we'll find out. So this is the day. So I wasn't even, trust me, the way I'm feeling, I wasn't even going to... uh, this is not particularly a unique circumstance. People are, are suffering. People are dealing with various shades of what I'm dealing with. My my circumstances seem kind of extreme. At least the day today did. But, you know, w- what can I do? I can't go to a nursing home. I can't, ent- I can't enter a nursing home. I can't enter a hospital. I'm, I'm forced to deal with this remotely through the phone and what other sources I can with the medical experts that uh, we rely on, with the legal experts that I have hired with family and friends. Um, I, 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 I know that's a downer, right? But I felt like if I can't share it with, with the people, then what's the point? What's, what are we dealing with right now? If you're suffering or if your loved ones are suffering, reach out. Um, people want to help. The response I've been getting has been tremendous. So reach out to your loved ones. Reach out to your friends. Reach out to strangers. Not just any stranger, but, you know, people that are there to reach out to. In other words, maybe a social worker or a therapist or a podcaster. Uh, is episode 607. The guest is named Naomi McDougall-Jones. She uh, has been a, and is a filmmaker. She is an actor, and she is now an author. This is a, 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 a conversation about her new book. It's called The Wrong Kind of Women, Inside a Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood. Uh, it is very much a 
Me Too byproduct, if you will. I don't mean that in any, by the way. I, that's only in the best way I mean that. And it's just she's taking things even further. This is a, a lot of research and anecdotal and uh, empirical data it went into making this book. And it's very well researched and well written. And she is a delightful guest. And it is being, it is available now. You can order it. Uh, there's an audio book. There is a uh, Kindle. Uh, you can uh, buy the physical book. Um, and um, it is uh, published by Beacon Press. And um, we have the Naomi Jones, Naomi McDougal Jones on the podcast right now for your listening pleasure. Uh, this is my conversation. I met her uh, recently at, a, at the Nighthawk Cinema in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where she was uh, involved in an event there, and I was there. And then we decided to get together and do this podcast that you're about to hear right now. And here it is. Uh, uh, actor, filmmaker, author, Naomi McDougal-Jones, here on Film Wax Radio. I It was nice to meet you back pre. <laughs> yeah, was... I know. We're straddling the the we... world turning upside down. There was the world before it turned upside down yeah. where, when we were both sitting in a small cinema that plays independent films only a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, correct? Where you hosted a screening, right? Of Anya Sparta's, like it was, you know, it's like, uh, uh, is it a memoir in a way, a filmic memoir? Yeah. Well, so what it's the was? last film she made before she died. It's called Varda by Agnes. And it's about, mm -hmm. it's sort of her documentary about herself and her life and her work. Yeah. And it was so beautiful. Oh, she's such, was such an amazing yeah. filmmaker, but also person. Like she's just this f hysterical little Belgian woman. <laughs> she really was. I met her. I, um, she, did you? Yeah. She sort of did the podcast. Um, her second to last, her penultimate film, was a, a collaboration with the photographer J.R. He, he's sort mm -hmm. of a, you know, uh, anyway, you, he, her last film before this. And it was really funny. And the two of them, he's a young French or Belgian. Uh, I'm trying to remember where he's from. But anyway, he's like this young, hip guy who's a photographer. And, of course, she's this venerable doyen of the film. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, in her day, she she of course helped change what cinema looks like and of course yeah. remained relevant right to the end as you just said but uh to see the two of these guys together it was it was a very fun experience and i never do round tables because you know you know, that really you can't when you're podcasting you mm -hmm. can't sit around with other people who are asking anything you know and try to it just doesn't work i don't i never do that but in this case, I made an exception because it's all he could get, you know, Yeah. Naomi. And so I sat with uh, her right next to her. And uh, wow. I kept trying to resist the urge to give her a hug or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, social, not practicing social distancing. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so you did a Q&A at that, right? With the, You were the A side of the Q&A, though. You were... Right. Yeah, so um, so Nighthawk Cinema had invited, you they know, had heard about my book and wanted to do an event with me, but so they had suggested, why don't we pair it with a screening and you can talk about the book after and pick, and so we decided to pick that film since uh, Varda is one of the really only iconic female filmmakers um, with a body of, of work, not the Lena only by a long shot, but I'm certainly to think one of, of the biggest. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any of her. Yeah, I mean, uh, back then there were maybe two or three in the entire world. Yeah, right. So her film seemed like such a perfect um, pairing. And it was so nice because I, I was in the middle of a book tour and was doing so many talks about women, the lack of women in film and sort of like mm -hmm. 
in each talk trying to get the audience to imagine what female cinema could even look like and sort of like to understand the cost of all these careers that have been killed and lost. And after that screening, I was just able to turn to them and say like, like imagine how many Vardas we've lost because of what I'm talking about. And it was so powerful. Let's put it in a, in a even a more a more of a context. You referenced your book. Its title is "The Wrong Kind of Women." This is as as good a case of a bookload of empirical data. If anybody was doubting before the disparity in the film industry, which obviously favors men and has since there was film to begin with. Well, not quite, but since the silent film era, that's true. Oh, so going in originally, there were a lot more women? Yeah, so during the silent film era, there were actually more women writers, directors, and even studio heads than men. Studio Um, heads? I'm going to play devil's advocate, by the way. I read the book, but I'm going to still play devil's advocate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, So, yeah, so at that time, it was... It was a it was a new art form. People kind of thought of as an thought of it as an eccentric hobby. Yeah. Nobody really thought it was an industry, and also the men were away fighting World War One, and it was sort of like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. You can m- muck yeah. around with that. Right. Um, and these women were making radical stuff, like they were making films about abortion and cross dressing and lesbianism, and they were showing themselves naked on screen in the early nineteen hundreds. And not in like an objectified way, but like in a sort of I am woman, hear me roar kind of way. Some and sort of empowering wor- version of that. In other yeah. Words. And they, their films were getting banned in theaters across the country. They were sparking riots <laughs> in New York. Um, and so then, uh, so then when talkies came about, um, everybody sort of realized that this was going to become a real industry and that there was real money to be made here. And so Wall Street came to the men in the industry and said, okay, we'll invest in this and we'll turn it into a real thing, but you have to get rid of the women if we're going to do that because A, they don't know how to run business, obviously, and B, uh, we're going to have a problem in society if women keep making these movies and women around the country keep watching them and they're going to get all sorts of ideas about right. what they should be allowed to do. So, so in other, uh, yeah, maybe in other words, but they, they, the women didn't have proper studios, right? They were these early pioneers, let's call them, they were producing uh, and raising money and producing and were indeed executives uh, and running these these companies. But perhaps with the help of Wall Street, they could have created studios That's right. entrenched themselves into the very fiber and fabric of that industry. And then there would have been probably they would have given jobs to men. You know, let's give them a try. They're back from the yeah. war. <laughs> I feel bad for the guy. He's, yeah. you know. <laughs> so Wall Street, who were uh, probably, I'm going to guess, male-dominated. Yeah. Good, decided, good guess. <laughs> they gave, <laughs> I'm being ironic, but it's actually not very funny because, you know, I mean, for 100 years now, it's left its, its, this imprint, you know, this, this uh, legacy. Uh, so well, with that time period where they came in and they helped to finance, I guess, and create these uh, studios that was pretty much a nail in the coffin for women running the new industry. Yeah, and they, I mean, they were so successful in evicting women that it went from women being the majority or close to majority in most jobs uh, to between 1945 and 1979, less than one half of all, less than one half of 1% of all studio films and television shows were directed by women from 1945 to 1979. All of this stuff we're talking about, which is actually even presages of the majority of the, let's say, the realm of what your book is is, is, is uh, dealing with, it's much more contemporary in terms of the majority yeah. of the time. I mean, you do reference the past quite a bit, obviously, but a lot of this is about more recent age. So yeah. this stuff is, have you, in a sense, as a result of your research for the book, have become something of a, a film historian? I mean, a little bit. As, as you say, most of the book is, is focused on the contemporary situation. And, um, you know, yeah. to this day, despite the fact that women are now 50% of film school graduates, 95% of the top studio films are still directed by men. Uh, and, you know, predominantly white men. And, 
And so the book is really looking at how is that possible? (laughs) That is so insane that that number of women are being bled out of the industry over their career. So how is that possible? What does that look like in the careers of women? Like what is actually happening to them? How does systemic oppression show up in that way? And then what that's doing to our brains as a society that we've been stuck in this monolithic perspective of of white men in terms of all of the images we're consuming and stories we're consuming and and the impact that's having on our real lives. Are you talking about self-esteem in a sense? Capital in terms of your own ability to walk into a room, whether it's with an agent or potential agent or audition or production meet, whatever it is, you walk in with a certain amount of confidence when people look like there are more women represented, for instance, or uh, so it can it has that psychological impact. It's one of the smaller components to the yeah. problem as a result of the uh, Well, other. I mean, certainly these these images and stories from this monolithic white male gaze that has largely objectified and or erased women from the storylines has created a whole host of problems, certainly within women themselves in terms of, um, you know, obsession and concern with with looks, with body image, with um, anti-aging, with certainly self-esteem, um, but also in very real ways, um, there's there's a slew of scientific studies to show that the films we watch affect everything from our career choices to our um, hobbies, to our relationship status, to our sense of selves, to our views of other people, to even literally our brain chemistry and neural pathways. Um, and that's true of men and women. That's just anybody who watches and consumes media. So this industry that is perhaps the most power, most powerful single entity in terms of shaping our real world behavior and culture and thoughts and sense of ourselves is coming almost exclusively from the white male gaze. Mm. I appreciate also in your throughout the book, you illustrate the some of this is very determined in a conscious way. Some of it is probably by the majority of people is more benign, but it's they're still participating in this, you know, mm-hmm. whether they, they think so or not, uh, meaning the white male, I guess, in general. Uh, you know, where they are just doing things as, as um, benign as what most people do, which is to try to hire somebody or work somebody who looks like them, who they feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But there is a whole spectrum there. There are very much, um, very specifically, making a conscious effort to keep women out of the industry. Yeah, and this is an important context for the book because, as you say, it's not for the most part like there's a cabal of white dudes at the top who are sort of like cackling maniacally and being like, "Let's keep the women out." You know, I mean, I I think there's a certain amount of that of that that goes on, frankly. But but the 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 far greater. mechanisms that keep women out are actually really in the details and in these sort of like sort of understandable uh, decisions and human nature and all this stuff that is in our brains because all of us were raised in a sexist society in the same way that we were raised in a racist society. And so all of us have programmed into our brains these uh, little behaviors and unconscious biases that elevate white men above everybody else. And so one of the points I make is it's not enough just not to be actively sexist or racist against people. Like if you are not actively working to help fix these systems, you are part of the problem. And so there's this thing that um, like sort of the good guy, the good guy problem, right, of of those people who like they're like, well, I'm not actively oppressing anybody, you know, as I'm not. I'm not assaulting women. I'm not, you know, I'm just like, I'm one of the good guys. But then if you're not actively helping to fix the situation, but you're benefiting it from, from it, then you are contributing to the problem. It's the same thing with white women. Right. Um, you know, not always doing a good enough job of, of elevating women who don't look like us in these fights for feminism. Well, you're in a lesser position to kind of take responsibility for that because, you know, when there's only scraps to begin with, it's, it's it, it, you know, it's a different mentality you're going to have. It's going to be far more competitive, I, I have to imagine. Well, I mean, yes and no. I think that, 
I don't think that that's good enough. Like, I think we have Fine. to do better good, than that. Good. And well, you know, I, I think uh, the, what, the pro- another problem with the white, I apologize for interrupting you. I just wanted to say you, no, you, no. you touched on something. And I myself went through a good 40, I don't know how many years. I grew up uh, in a middle class, I'm Jewish, white, urban upbringing with money, you know, and never really, even though I was brought up in a very liberal environment, I never really still had to think about anything, really. I didn't really have to. I would have called myself fairly progressive. But if you looked around at my circle of friends, these people looked a lot like me. And so it's what I bring. I made some conscious choices at a certain point. You know, I'm not trying to sound like a sort of more evolved than anybody else but i no, you know no. life life presented me with different experiences and fortunately i took some of them and i really changed a lot you know and um there's no looking back you know it's a liberating thing i think a lot of people when you say things like what you just said uh in, about being part of the problem in a passive way or in a benign mm-hmm. past people tend to get defensive and i think that one thing i'd like to say as a guy who probably might have felt defensive at one time don't (laughs) don't (laughs) there that's my advice yeah well and i think um an important context in thinking about this and i i use i use this in my book but borrow heavily from the writer robin d'angelo who wrote the book white fragility is that um we our whole framing for how we tend to think about these things is yeah. is part of the problem. Like we say, oh, this person is a sexist or this person is a racist. And then that becomes a personality trait and a fixed point. And I think that's when people get really defensive and are, and because like the worst thing you can call a white person is a racist, right? Like then people get so freaked out and like panicky and defensive and, and nothing moves forward. But to say, again, like, we all have these things in our brain because we were all raised in a racist society in the same way that we were all raised in a sexist society. And so what, what it's not a personality trait, but, but your actions to either uphold or dismantle those systems are a variable thing that can change over the course of your life and can change over the, from day to day, mm-hmm. you know, like you can, but the, but the goal is just to always try to do better and to be more educated and like, you're going to fuck up, right? But then like you try to do better ne- the next day and you try to learn from that. And you, it's just, as long as you are always trying to do better and move forward, then that's great. You don't have to be perfect immediately because nobody will because we all live in this society. It's as easy a time as ever as a male to speak up for women. I mean, it's not that controversial anymore. So uh, one thing I want to talk about, because you really did do so much homework here, and by the way, we're speaking with uh, Naomi McDougall-Jones, who is the author of The Wrong Kind of Women, which is available right now and published by Beacon Press. You did a lot of homework, and you spoke to a lot of people in the industry, men and women, and you, of course, must have talked to, it sounds like, social scientists or other professionals from other fields to uh, gather all this data and information. Just an additional reason why I wanted to talk to you is because you have a lot of my friends here in this book. That <laughs> a number of whom have actually appeared on this podcast, including Leah Meyerhoff, for instance. Oh, wonderful. Eliza Hittman, Melissa Silverstein, and uh, Jack Lechner is an old-time friend. But also Jacqueline Gramigna, who's, uh-huh. uh, uh, I, I did a screening with her once, I believe. Oh, wait, was I in her short she directed? It may have been. In a, <laughs> I think I was. I think I acted in a film of hers, actually, and then also uh, Janet Grillo. I've 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 uh, met a few times, and I think that's just a few of the people. But so I felt yeah. compelled, all the more compelled to talk to you. But who who did you talk to on different sides of this? There are obviously a lot of people, women in the film industry, right? Yeah. Um, so on the interview side, I did over a hundred interviews with men, and mostly women and some men up and down the sense. industry, and. Sure. Um, and my goal was really to get a broad cross section of people across all sorts of intersections Mm -hmm. from the famous all the way down to the not famous. I think on issues like this, we tend to hear a lot from the super famous people in the industry, which makes sense because they're the ones with the platform, but they're also representing a very specific perspective. And they also have a lot to risk and lose by saying the real truth about things. I hadn't thought of that. And so, um, so, so the goal here was to look at, okay, but what about the women who haven't made it? 
haven't made it yet or won't ever make it or who have been forced to leave the industry, um, like the, the, you can only get a, a real look at the, the spectrum of the issue by, t by looking all the way up and down that range. Also talking to actresses, directors, writers, producers, women below the line, um, studio executives. What's below um, the line, just for somebody who may not know? Oh, sorry. So like a crew, uh, yeah, crew on a film, um, uh, talking to studio executives, to agents, to, you know, gatekeepers. And then, as you say, I pulled a lot, a lot of research, thousands of pages of research studies, from white papers, studies, yeah. scholarly papers, research papers, um, mm -hmm. both that are specifically about the industry, but also about the social sciences in general and sort of looking at discrimination and, and systemic uh, exclusion and oppression in general. One person you quoted uh, this not to go back into what we were talking about before necessarily, but I was amused. Um, William Friedkin, who's you know, <laughs> eighty something years old at this stage. One of I mean, he's a great filmmaker. Nobody can argue with uh, his uh, legacy of films, and he actually did this podcast too. But he uh, oh. was you know very honest in terms of what he thought. He you know he, in all the years he's been working, he's never read into a racist filmmaker or a misogynist filmmaker. And I'm sure he really feels that way. And um, I'm sure he roots for women. However, again, we're, you know, I don't think he can explain then why <laughs> it's an industry <laughs> where you only right. run into one woman every few weeks, you know. <laughs> but well, and, he I is, think... and he's married to one of the most powerful women in the industry. So maybe... That's as far as he's thinking. I don't know. You know, Sherry Lance. Yeah, I mean, right? I think he's he's a perfect example of, of what I'm talking about in terms of sort of passively and okay, right. willfully, blindfully um, upholding the system that you're benefiting from. Um, so I think his comment was something like, uh, you know, well, I've never seen a woman, woman lose a job because she was a woman. Wherever women can compete, they, they do. Which... <laughs> Again, like, you can explain away the lack of career success of any single woman, right? You can say, well, she's not talented enough, or she doesn't work hard enough, or she's got X, Y, and Z psychic hangups, but you can't look, look at the data and say, okay, 50% of film school graduates are women, and 95% of studio films are directed by men. And, like, to say and that that, that just comes that down off, to... Right? to weaknesses right. in each of us is just basically to say that women are less talented and less deserving of a voice in the most powerful industry in terms of shaping our culture. And I just don't believe or accept that. Or that it's an industry committed to parody. Right. Which it isn't. It likes to right. pretend it is, yeah. but it, it isn't. It's the year of the woman, though. Is it? Again. <laughs> We're having kind even of a though, shit year though... for the year of the woman. <laughs> The woman, A-M-A-N, woman, one woman. Uh, no, but it's like, <laughs> and it's, she's married to William Friedkin. No, yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, I've been reading some of the recent statistics, and the number of women directors and, of course, award winners is, uh, is actually on the down slide. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were actually more maybe uh, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah, it's pretty depressing. So, after, I mean, and that's 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 after all this Me Too and Harvey Weinstein stuff and this like two years of all these articles, which were, was right. very, very good, very positive. But very all good. these these two years of articles and panels and speeches and sort of and I think we're at this real danger point right now because people sort of feel like change has happened. Right. Like it feels the studios have done a very good job of sending out a lot of flashy PR headlines saying Here like look we solved our woman problem we solved right. our diversity problem and like yeah. right because it's in their interest a, a lot of high-powered white executives who have behaved very very badly being punished for it so there's a now well okay things are now just let things go let things exactly. go naturally they'll now fix themselves because we've we've gotten rid of the the problem you know right and that's a really dangerous idea because um, historically, that has never been true after one of these moments. And in fact, yeah. you see historically what's happening right now, which is that there's this big moment of outcry and everybody's paying attention. And then there's like slight, there's a slight uptick in the numbers briefly. And then everybody goes, oh, great, we'll just let that go. And then they look away and the numbers go straight back to what they were before. Mm. Um, and we're in a moment where that is, we're on the precipice of that happening again. So it's again, really important that we understand that the numbers behind the camera really aren't changing. 
and not to get sort of disoriented by a couple of high profile examples. Like the fact that Ava DuVernay exists is so great and so awesome. And I love, she's a goddess, but it doesn't fix parody. She's the one, you know? Right. So, she's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few, but there's it's not enough to say, see, there's parody. Um, well, and, and like, just as a reality check, we are 51% of the population. <laughs> and, and, and that's just women. Like, white men are about 30% of the population in the United States, which means that there's 70% of us whose voices are being squeezed into about 5% of uh, the cinematic voice, which is just a really big problem. Like, this isn't about the white male perspective not being valid. It's yeah. totally valid. It's 100% valid 30% of the time. If it's people just that argue that, that 70% of the non-white male population should just take control, well, you could look at places like South Africa where it was like 90% non-white, yet look at what was going on there for all those years. Oh, now I'm just right. sort of being maybe a little too uh, Well, and I mean, I think to, to that point, it's it's actually in the white men's best interest to cede some power before we just do decide. Like, Yikes. You, you, it's, it, it's not going to be the best version of this for you all if at some point we just all rise up and take the power back. You know? I guess so. But it, just in case, remember this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I reached I'll put out. You on, I'll put you on the list. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You directed two feature films yourself. And, uh, um, after, I didn't. After, I, I'm actually not a director. I wrote sorry, and produced. Yeah. You wrote and produced. I, I yeah. should have. Yeah, I know that. You were, before that, an aspiring actor. This is a lifelong dream, right, from when you were a young woman and a, a child, perhaps even. And yeah. uh, you chose to pursue writing because of the challenges that and, and obstacles that we're talking about as a young actor, right? You experienced yeah. uh, a lot of doors. And again, a lot of people could say, well, this is typical for actors. But what you experienced was, was more nefarious in, in, on top. You were not assaulted physically, but you have been the subject of harassment, I have to assume. A lot, of, yeah, sort of an, an, an yeah. unending thrum of harassment. On all yeah, sorts I mean, of I, levels, right? Yeah, and, and the book starts... The first um, third of the book or so is about the experience mm -hmm. of actresses because I think there there is the sense, even among actresses themselves, of, well, acting is a really tough profession. It's tough for everybody. You just put down, put your head down and do the work and, and move forward. But the, And it is tough for everybody. But the reality is that what actresses experience is very, very different from what their male colleagues experience. For one thing... Um, there are just fewer jobs. Uh, so f in film, there's this bizarre reality that there are, there are two men for every one woman on screen. So that's true of leading characters and supporting characters and also crowd scenes. So films really? are literally this bizarro universe in which women are a minority population. <laughs> um, so there are fewer jobs. But, um, but, but more than that... Uh, the I actually made it a project in these interviews to see if I could find an actress who didn't have sexual harassment and assault stories in the course of her career, and I, it was impossible to, for me to find one. Like, this is so much, and not just one experience, but sort of baked into basically the everyday experience of being an actress, and particularly a young actress. And um, by the way, you, you know, you must bring that sense of defensiveness, not even defensiveness, that's the wrong word, but you must bring that into every audition every oh absolutely um, you know again every first meeting maybe uh that how when you're uh, on some level your body your your mind is expecting to be harassed right you know? and 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 we're sort of taught both explicitly and unexplicitly to just take it that that is just part of the job and like, if you stand up for yourself or say no, you will lose a job. And I, I lost many jobs when I was an actress because I wouldn't date the director or I wouldn't... D directors um, asked you to out for, for yeah. a dinner or drinks yeah. or something, right? Yeah. Okay. Alone, I mean. Mm -hmm. just yep. Really. And not like in a, not in like a colleague way, but, or, or, or initially in a colleague way, but then it would sort of flip somewhere in the night okay. and then Gets I would fuzzy. say no and then I would lost the job. That happened a lot of times. To me, that's not a remarkable thing to happen to an actress. So there's sort of that whole 
horrible set of the situation on top of which then the roles that you're auditioning for are horrible like I wanted to be an actress to play the kind of roles that Meryl Streep plays you know like interesting smart complex dynamic women and spent my time as an actress basically auditioning for Naked Corpse number five or the very supportive girlfriend or the secretary or um and at first it's what you are told is that it's just you right like you're just not quite the right kind of woman which is where the the title of the book the wrong kind of women comes from but um you know like if you could just be thinner or just like dye your hair or straighten your hair or straighten your teeth or if you're a woman of color just look a little bit whiter or you know like uh the sort of horrendous uh swirl of things that we're sent off to fix about ourselves to fit into what Hollywood understands to be the right kind of woman to be in a movie. Um, and then the roles are just very boring or very offensive or very degrading, or um, certainly in the case of women of color, particularly just horrendous stereotypes that if you don't fit into, like a, a number of the women of color I interviewed for the book would, would recount constantly being told well you're you don't act latina enough or could you be a little more black Sass, right right? Sassier, <laughs> like, and, right. And, you know, right right yeah um so but so so sort of across the board it's like when when you're when the industry is casting a male role they sort of are looking for like the unique nuanced and i, I mean a white male role this sort of unique nuanced actor that can capture the unique nuance of that role but when they're casting a woman they're almost always casting a stereotype and if you don't fit that stereotype you just won't get cast by deciding to publish this book to write it uh have you just sort of just by by this nature of doing so become up uh an activist are you now an activist uh i or, yeah i mean would you, I, were you a fem would you have self-identified as a, a feminist <clears throat> before certainly uh, yes okay okay um because i believe that women should have the same rights as everybody else okay which is what i believe the definition of a feminist is but but certainly i have been on top of that an activist for a number of years before okay writing yeah. the book as well i think being a feminist does involve some activism maybe more than just believing it that's just me. Well, I don't. I, I think I think that has that has been a meaning that's been sort of colloquially attached to it. But I okay. think mm-hmm. to I be, I believe that the pure definition of it is just like, do you believe that women sh- women should have the same rights as other people? Great, you're a feminist. <laughs> it's not very controversial, but not, it shouldn't be very controversial. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be yeah. yeah. Um, and so now what? I mean, you know, you've written this <laughs> very popular book. I guess you were on a book tour until that was shelved. Yes. That's why we're sitting here, because I want people to know about your book. And uh, if it can reach as, uh, some more people, I'm glad Thank for that. You. you know, sell a few more books. But w- w- were you steered away from doing this? Because, you know, I'm sure, uh, again, speaking out is not been public. It, it's a little easier. Maybe, maybe now it's a little easier, but I don't mm. know. I think there's still consequences for anybody who speaks out. I don't know all the actors. We still have yet to see what a lot of the Me Too activists' careers are going to look like, even though uh, we really, you know, everybody's applauding them, but we'll have have to see how much work, uh, what kind of work they get, and the budgets, and will their careers grow? Will they stagnate? We don't know yet. Well, and to be clear, um, so I I began speaking out about this stuff in about 2014. and from that day to this have been explicitly told by many people above me in the industry that if I didn't stop talking that I would torpedo my career. Um, And certainly when I've lost at least one important professional relationship as a result of the book itself. Um, And that's just the person who told me, (laughs) you know, like, and, and there, there are bodies of women all over the place who whose careers have been laid waste because they were too vocal about these issues. And I think people get confused about that because there is sort of like a patty cakes activisty girl power version of this conversation that's that is allowable. You are allowed to wear black to the Golden Globes that year. You are allowed to when you accept your award sort of say like women should get more things. But like if you but but there's a very big 
crevasse between that and actually speaking about how systemic oppression is happening inside of Hollywood and like what are the mechanisms and what would it actually take to change and that's the kind of conversation that will get you um, blacklisted. Is there a bird in there with you? Is there a bird? Uh, there, sounds, is there, <laughs> sounds like I'm there, hearing there are something. birds outside of my window. Oh, oh okay, that's yeah. what I was hearing. That's, oh, okay, that's no problem either way. I just all of a sudden started <laughs> started hearing that in the background. Were, you're, so are you in a suburb of Atlanta somewhere? No, we're in, uh, Atlanta has so they call Atlanta the city in the forest, and there are oh. so many trees here. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. Uh, there is a one thing I try to remember if it was you that experienced this, where you went to a conference or someone went to, that you talked to went to a conference where you, it was you, I believe you yeah, were invited to a festival or or some sort of convention, perhaps, and and where you invited to speak about this very subject matter that we're talking about right now, what your book is about, and you were chastised by. Uh, a couple of other professional uh, uh, industry yeah. professionals, rather, that were on the same panel or invited to the same festival anyway, including one uh, seasoned female. Yeah, and and in fact, one of the most successful indie female producers of all time, uh, who had who was one of my. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. <laughs> don't who... <laughs> name names, and I'm gonna. Don't. I'm not either. That's coming out. Don't worry. She's. Um, who came up to me afterwards and said, um, I don't think it's a good idea to play the woman card and refused to speak to me for the rest of the festival. Um, and uh, another m- male... I fought too hard to get here. I don't need you to... Well, I mean... Is that what's... I think that? What's that? What's that I don't about? know what was in her heart in that moment. I do think... I think sometimes when people have said these things to me, it's it's out of their feeling like they're trying to help me. Like... Look, <laughs> you, look young. I mean, like, whippersnapper. Well, or or like, you just know that like, you need to know how you need to understand how the world works. Like, if you if you talk about these things, you know. Um, but but there has to also feel as she sounds more mature than you potentially, uh, given her experience. But that maybe there is this feeling of I had to go through this. You know, I mean, among a very few people, I don't think I think the overwhelming majority of women would that have gone through decades potentially of being harassed or discriminated against or the combination of the two would be only too thrilled that their next generation of sisters and daughters don't have to go through that. But maybe there's some. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly I think particularly within a certain generation, there can be some of that feeling of like. If if they have fought that hard to get where they are and had to go through and sort of suck it up and not say these things I think there can be a feeling of um sort of just being threatened by the idea that you could say these things out loud that um oh yeah you know even even feeling uh threat that it somehow threatens their success Mm. the the narrative around their success or embarrassment or self shame that she maybe this particular producer maybe somebody else didn't do enough maybe yeah. there's that maybe that could be sure. why she wouldn't talk to you because when she looked at you she saw in her soul <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> I'm baking a little light of it but I'm serious no, yeah, I mean that's you right. know and I think um, but I, but on t- but alongside that I do just want to say because I hear this a lot of like well women don't help women enough either and like you know which. I think in a in in a in a certain sense has been historically true. However, I will also say that any woman who has become successful in this industry or in most industries has had to work three or four times as hard. You know, she's done it backwards and in heels, and and is in a more right, precarious right. position than her male colleagues still. And so, I do think that we we love to villainize women in power on all sides as, as women also do that. And so I, I think like to say that a woman has to, to succeed and do that. And then also like give all of her time also to help other. It's just like, I believe very much that women have to help each other, but also men have to help women and also like peer to peer. We just, we have to be, we have to stop villainizing women in power as well. What's your mom think of the book? <laughs> um, 
I think she's very proud. My mother is a raging feminist Scottish lady, and she raised me very fiercely to be the she's same. She's the McDougal part she's of the, the family. She's the McDougal. Your dad is the Jones. Yeah, family. that's okay. right. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think she's very proud. You should be too. Thank you. It's a great. It's a very good book, and it's much needed. The response has been good. It has been, as as you say, it was. It had been up for about a month and a half when COVID hit us. So. Mm. Uh, we'll see we'll see what happens after this but um but the response before that was so exciting and in so many different ways like um you know women who had been in the industry for many years sometimes decades writing to me and saying you know like I I've been living this for 30 years but blaming myself and thinking that I wasn't good enough and it wasn't until reading this book that I actually understood what I was up against and I wish I just wish that somebody had given me this book 30 years ago so that I understood um which is heartbreaking but also hopeful hopefully going forward and um uh, white men writing to me and saying like I didn't understand this before I was like one of the good guys and I, I was doing an okay job but but now I see how I can do better and what and how I can help and um, a big response from colleges and film schools and acting schools and, and my my great hope actually is that going forward this book will be taught at the undergraduate level and and at least assigned at the undergraduate level because I think if you could I think we do a grave disservice by not being honest with young people coming into the industry about the state of things. I would argue that it should be taught in high schools Mm. because I think by the time you get to college, you're already a little late to the the dance. I mean, I think um, young, I I mean, I was originally thinking that maybe, you know, this should be taught to young women who, because by high school, you've got a generation already committed to being actors. Mm. I mean, that's true. You know it's an industry that thrives off youth anyway, so but a lot of actors want to be are dying to be actors even in middle yeah, school or true. grade school for God's sake. But that this is important for the men. Yes. And the young boys that's right. as much as it is for the young girls and what they may have to contend with or you know things they can think about as they pursue their careers but I think it's I do think it's important for everybody yeah I agree because again I think like before men enter the industry or when they're already Mm -hmm. in it again like they may not realizing the ways they may not see the ways in which they're benefiting from a system that is oppressing other people and they should at least be given the opportunity to decide if they want to participate in upholding that system or if they want to be part of the solution and I think a large number of men would like to be part of the solution um, but they need the information, right? Yeah, which you, which you can get, which from you can get from my book. <laughs> the, the, the wrong, the wrong kind of women, published by Beacon Press. Thank you for hanging out with. Thanks me. so much for having me on. This was so fun. Let's do it again. Okay. Are you gonna have? Uh, are you gonna make another film? Absolutely. Or? I'm I'm on draft yeah. eleven of my third feature film. So you're about halfway there. Uh, probably a little <laughs> less. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was kidding. What's the name? Do you have a name uh, for it? Or? It's tentatively titled Hammond Castle. It's about a seven-month pregnant woman who gets locked overnight in a castle full of famous ghosts. Is this a comedy? <laughs> it's, what is uh, this? Famous it's, ghosts? It is comedic. It's it's a magical realism sort okay, of... Okay, tale. Yeah. Tale. But your other two films, one is called... I, I thought it was really clever, called Bite Me. It's, which is kind of a horror comedy, right? Yeah, it's a romantic comedy about a real-life vampire and the IRS agent who audits her. <laughs> <laughs> so a real-life vampire, you keep saying that, I, but as opposed to what? Well, so, so in, in, real, in our real world, actually, okay. there are, there's oh, a community of okay. people who believe that they are vampires um, in the sense that they believe that they need to drink human blood to stay healthy. Um, this is a real thing, globally. I didn't know that. Um, okay. And so, globally. Yeah. Uh, n- mm-hmm. Not not as not as small a community as you would think. And so uh, so the film the protagonist of the film. Well, I hope they're if they're listening, they're staying home too. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, everybody <laughs> should be ahead. staying home. Um, yes. So they uh, it's all consensual. They don't attack anyone. To be clear, it's it's all very. Um, they have they have donors. Um, 
but yeah, so so the protagonist of the film is a is a vampire in that sense, and she lives with other vampires and is part of a vampire community in New York City, and they get audited because they're a registered church for tax purposes, and she ends up falling oh. in love with her IRS agent. Okay, I'm not going to ask you how you arrived at the story, because <laughs> I'm just going to say I want to see it, though. <laughs> Can, is it uh, available? Yeah, it's on, on uh, iTunes and Amazon and Google Play. Um, actually, okay. uh, well, this Wait. Sunday we're doing, uh, there's a there's an indie cinema in Wichita, Kansas, actually called Mama Film, that's doing a virtual screening series. Um, mm-hmm. So anybody can watch the film anywhere in the world. And then um, at, at uh, 4.45 Eastern time on Sunday, they can log in and do a Zoom Q&A with our cast and director and me. And um, oh. it's going to be really fun. It was a really nice talk. So nice to, you. to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Nice to see you again. And if you come through this part of the ne- neck of woods anytime soon, um, don't stop by. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, do do. <laughs> yeah, thank okay. you very much. We'll uh, just mention again. The name of the book is The Wrong Kind of Women. It's available now. Is there is the audio? It is. Book? It's an hardcover it. audio book which I read, and it's an ebook as well. Oh, you read? Yeah. Okay, that's another conversation. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll let you go. Okay. Get back to it. It was nice to so talk nice to you. So nice to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs. Yeah.